0: This is Smart Choices for a Happier Family Life with Pamela Chambers, and this is podcast number nine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Smart Choices for a Happier Life, where it's a community of people working together for social good. Let's share love, peace, and let's talk. Here's your host, Pamela Chambers. Hello, everybody. Today, we have Dr. Eileen Kennedy-Moore on our show today. She is a psychologist, author, and mother of four. She has a private practice in Princeton, New Jersey, where she works with families, children, and adults. She is the co-author of two books for parents. One of them is titled Smart Parenting for Smart Kids and the Unwritten Rules of Friendship. She's also the author of an award-winning children's book, What About Me? 12 Ways to Get Your Parents' Attention Without Hitting Your Sister. She blogs on psychologytoday.com, and her blog is titled Growing Friendships. She is also on the advisory board for Parents Magazine. So she is a great guest of ours, and she also is, there are um, her video series for parents titled Raising Emotionally and Socially Healthy Kids, which was produced by thegreatcourses.com. And that video series is currently on sale for 70% off at thegreatcourses.com, and it's one of the reasons, too, that I wanted to have her on our show, because it's such a great video series, and having it be on sale, I'm hoping that most of you will run to go ahead and grab it up. So, here we're going to, let's get Eileen Kennedy on the show here to talk more about her video series. All right, everybody, I want to welcome Dr. Eileen Kennedy Moore. And she is the one who is um, on the CDs, which are Raising Emotionally and Socially Healthy Kids at thegreatcourses.com forward slash kids,
1: correct? That's right. Thanks for having me on the show,
0: Pamela. Well, I am so excited to have you on our show because your information fits right into the genre of my audience. So let's get started. Now, what was your inspiration behind these CDs?
1: Well, most of my work has focused on parenting and especially about helping children develop essential social and emotional skills, helping them learn to manage their feelings and build strong relationships. So the great courses actually approached me about doing the series. It's available in both video and audio versions. And I jumped at it because this is something that I'm very passionate about.
0: Well, yeah, because emotional regulation is really has a lot to do with success in life. You know, if we can regulate our emotions, we can think more clearly, correct?
1: That's absolutely true, Pamela. And so many times we think of like, academic and professional success as one category, and then social and emotional issues as is something completely different. But really, these are the foundation for just about every kind of success in life.
0: I would agree. Now, can you, for the audience, sometimes emotional intelligence is sort of Can you define maybe how you would define emotional intelligence?
1: Well, different people have different definitions, but basically I think it involves being able to understand and regulate our own emotions and also to be able to understand and communicate with other people about their feelings.
0: Right, and in, in the CD, the one thing I liked that you emphasized was the two different forms, emotion dismissing and emotion coaching. Can you explain the difference to the audience?
1: This is coming from research by John Gottman. And I think it's some of the most important research that's come out in the last um, couple of decades. So what he did is he brought parents and children into the lab and had them do different tasks. And what he noticed is that there were several different styles that parents use in relating to their children. So in some parents, when the the child would get frustrated would be very dismissing and say, "Come on, get over it, just just focus, just come on, just do it and now these were not mean parents I, re, I really want to emphasize this, but they were task oriented then another group of parents so th- th- these were what they, he called the emotion dismissing parents just get over the feelings. another group of parents had a style that he called um actually, I forget what he called it, but, but, but they, they were very gentle with the children and, oh, honey, this is so hard for you. And so they were very focused on the emotions, but they didn't really help the kids deal with those emotions. And then a third group, which is the most interesting group, is the emotion coping group. Now, these parents saw it as their job to help children learn to handle their emotions. So when the child became upset, they viewed this as a teaching opportunity. And what they found was that the the, the parents would acknowledge the child's feelings, but also talk about coping strategies. So I see you're getting a little frustrated. Let's just take a deep breath. Okay, now let's, let's just focus on one part of the puzzle or so, something like that. So you're acknowledging the feelings, but also giving children strategies for dealing with those feelings. And what Gottman found is that parents who did more emotion coaching had kids who um, did better academically, got along better with their peers, according to their teachers, um, and even um, were healthier. And these findings were true three years later. So coaching now predicted well-being three years later for their children. We never get those kind of results in social psychology research. So this is really exciting.
0: That's really neat. Three years later. Wow, that's pretty powerful.
1: Yes, I think so. And it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? We, we want to connect with our children emotionally, but we don't want to leave them just flailing alone with their emotions. We also want to help them say, okay, when you're anxious, what do you do? When you're angry, what do you do? Because those feelings are going to come up. <laughs> we know that.
0: Exactly. And I like some how you described, you know, helping our children problem solve. Instead of asking questions like, why did you or did you, which seem accusatory towards children. The preferred questions are, you know, what can you do or what might help or better questions to ask our children.
1: Exactly. We don't want to play prosecuting attorneys with our children. Did you do this? Why did you do this? <laughs> because nine out of ten kids are going to lie, or don't, <laughs> or it was his fault. They'll make excuses. So we want to focus on moving forward, and this is a, a, a very common among siblings. You know that these sibling squabbles that happen so often are again an opportunity for learning. Now. Often, when we're angry with our kids, what we focus on is wanting to punish them. You know, they did something rotten. Can I have a punishment that fits the crime? But really, that's not helpful because children don't learn by suffering. They learn from doing it right. So our question is, how can I get this child back on track? Now, sometimes the child just needs a break away from everybody to just settle down, and then we can focus on moving forward. But sometimes... A lovely, lovely question that you can ask your child is to talk about what's going on. Jeremy's feeling sad because his block tower is knocked over. You, you don't have to mention that because you blocked it over. You said that because the tower is knocked over. What can you do to help him feel better?
0: Yes. I, one of the best things I saw through all the CDs was that same point. Kids don't learn through suffering. They, they learn through doing it right. And I know so many parents who are, well, what do I do to discipline him? You know, it's just a matter of what can children do to fix it would be a better response.
1: Right. And how can we move forward? How can they make amends? How can they do an apology of action? Because that gets the child back on track and and doing the right thing. And that is how they learn. the the punishment is is a trap. <laughs> it's it, a lot of times parents get, when they come to see me are feeling very frustrated with their child, and a part of them is hoping that I will know an even more horrible punishment than anything they've been able to come up with, something that once and for all is going to make this kid learn whatever it is that they have to learn. But children don't, didn't learn to read once and for all, and they didn't learn to ride their bikes once and for all. Why would they learn something as complicated as managing feelings or getting along? with other people once and for all it's an ongoing thing discipline is about teaching not about hurting
0: oh i like that one a lot now um there are actually 12 cds or 12 lectures that you offer in your series which are really good and i thought i i could spend a whole podcast on each one but i thought what i would do is just kind of grab some of the cds first that i thought were more pertinent right Today sure. in today's culture and one of them is the teasing and bullying because I hear a lot of that in my office as a therapist and so how do you actually define bullying it's, it's very different than you know just an aggressive outburst by a child and so how would you define bullying
1: well the researchers define it as deliberate meanness um, over targeted at a specific individual. Some people say it's over time, so it's repeated, but some people say an, in a specific, um, a very severe, a single very severe event will count. But the most important characteristic that distinguishes bullying from what I call ordinary meanness is that there's an imbalance of power. So somehow the child doing the bullying is more powerful, bigger, stronger, or more socially um, higher status than the other child, which makes it hard for the other child to protect or defend themselves.
0: Gotcha. And I, I like how the research pointed out that you shared with us that aggressive children did some form of mean behavior every two minutes and non-aggressive children acted every three minutes of some form of mean behavior.
1: Exactly. So, much as we'd like it to be different, kids can be mean. And, you know, it's not usually a matter of, oh, I want to make this person suffer. It's just that their empathy isn't fully developed, and they can be impulsive, and they're not thinking things through, and they're experimenting with social power. So, to some extent, I think it's it's not helpful to label, well, these are the bad kids, and we need to protect the good kids from the bad kids. We need to teach all children how to make kind choices.
0: Yeah, and I think that the research points out, because a lot of parents won't be so upset when the children come home and describe a mean act towards them, knowing that it happens so often helps the parents not panic and think oh my god I can't believe this happened.
1: Right and I do think bullying the B word is thrown thrown around a lot too easily and I think that's a real disservice and it trivializes the very severe cases of peer abuse. I had a client once the the mom came in and said oh the, the teacher wanted me to tell you that my daughter was bullying another child and I said oh what happened and the mom said well, she called this other girl a big, fat meanie. Aww. Really? <laughs> I know. I mean, okay, this is not good behavior, and certainly this my client needed to learn better ways to resolve conflict, but this is not bullying. This is just kind of ordinary meanness, and to slap a label of bully on that child is not going to help her move forward.
0: How do? Yeah, and how would a parent know then, like you said, it's a differentiation of power, that is really important as far as to define bullying. So how does a parent know when to step in and maybe contact the school officials?
1: Well, I think we would start first by seeing if the child can handle it. Um, If if it's not obvious, like if if there's an eighth grader picking on a fourth grader, then the parent probably needs to step step in. if it's a whole gang of kids picking on one kid, then the parent might need to, to step in also. But that should not be our first go-to response. We want we want our kids to be able to handle the little bumps in the road. Um, I, I remember when, when my kids were younger, my um my son, who's the number two, used to enjoy sneaking up on my daughter, who's number three. I have four kids. Um, but he would sneak up on his next youngest um, sisters and grab her doll, and then she would start screaming bloody murder, and then I would get involved demanding that he give the doll back while he ran around the room laughing and flaunting the doll, so obviously, you know, my daughter screams, and my demands weren't doing a thing to discourage this behavior, so I decided to take a different tact, and I coached my daughter on how to respond, so the next time. He came up behind her and grabbed one of her dolls. She looked up at him and said, oh, I didn't realize you were interested in dollies. Would you like to play Kelly's with me? He laughed, threw the doll down, and that was the end of it. And let me tell you, that worked so much better than me getting involved in it for her to be able to handle the situation herself.
0: Yeah, so again, it's the emotional coaching is what you just described, sort of educating our children on a way maybe to end the teasing or the bullying.
1: Right, right. And so I could have said, oh, he's bigger and more powerful, this is bullying. Or I could have had confidence in my daughter's ability to handle this ordinary teasing.
0: Yeah, right now my daughter, who is in sixth grade, she's 11, going to be 12. She just, um, one of the the kids at school, one of the kids, she got um, upset at and called on Instagram, you guys are mean friends. Well one girl isn't talking to her. Uh-huh. So now she's like she keeps pressing forward and forward, trying to get this girl's attention. She's apologized and still the girl is just ignoring her. So it's been a real sort of challenge for her. How would you coach somebody in that issue?
1: well i think her impulse is right to, to apologize because she didn't make a mistake and we want to tell our children that in general you try not to put it online because what i tell my clients is don't put anything online that you wouldn't want announced over morning announcements <laughs> <Good. it's public. laughs> so um, and and that's something that children need to learn they don't know it innately they have to figure it out and usually they figure it out by making a mistake the other part of it though is I think the the parents of the other girl might be needing to talk to her about part of being a good friend is forgiving friends for making mistakes and no friend is always going to be perfect but it's, it's kind of an act of kindness and generosity to say okay we can move on now, for your daughter, it might also be helpful if she could talk to this girl directly um, um, in person, because the online communication—and I know the kids all love it—and their, their thumbs are always going with the text, but it's an attenuated form of connection of communication because we don't have the vocal tone, we don't have the facial expressions or the body language to add a subtext, sub-text to what the. They're is saying.
0: Exactly. I know growing up in the digital age is a real challenge for people these days with their children and I know you give some really good information in your lecture number 12 on growing up in the digital age. You said that 86 or research shows that 86% of children engage in unsafe risk on the internet, right?
1: That's what the research is saying and the the, the unsafe behavior includes privacy risks related to giving out personal information on the web. It includes contact risks like um, cyberbullying or talking to strangers on the web. And it also includes content risks related to encountering inappropriate or upsetting information online. So there definitely is a lot going on on there. And we absolutely have to educate our children about how to handle it if they encounter something that, that is upsetting and how to avoid um, the more awful things,
0: right? And you also said that online cannot, online interaction cannot replace face-to-face interactions. Correct?
1: That's very true. I mean, if you think about two kids playing um, an, an Xbox Live game, so they may not even be in the same room together, and so they could be talking, but they're certainly not looking at each other, um, and. Now, this is fun. Boys enjoy this, and and some girls do, but my observation is mostly boys who are doing this. And it's it's great fun to have a whole gang, and they're all doing it together. But now contrast that with two kids playing catch. So here, they're looking directly at each other. They have to move their bodies and anticipate where the next one, the the ball is coming. And it's a much more interactive, uh, more directly interactive way of communicating. Yes. So I think we have both. We're not going to get rid of video games and, and cell phones and it, that's, they're just part of our modern life. But we can recognize that that's just one part of connection.
0: Yeah, and I get a lot of parents in my office that say to me, how do I control my children's video game usage? Do you have any uh, suggestions?
1: Pretty much every mother of boys that I've ever seen said, so, "Oh my gosh, the video games! What am I going to do with those?" It's hard. It's hard. So I think the first thing you want to do is just look within yourself about what are you comfortable with, and um, different families are going to have different different standards. But I would say have some kind of uh, of limits on it because the research shows that kids whose parents have some limits do much, much less than the kids who have no limits. And in my experience, it's easier to say no uncertain days, you know, that, like not on school nights or something like that, Then to do a limited amount of time because the kids will argue, well, I only did 13 minutes, and I just didn't want to have those kind of conversations. <laughs>
0: oh, I have heard that one in my office, you know, how they, <laughs> you know, change the time, they'll even change clocks, I mean, <laughs> it's amazing it's, how it's, kids... It's,
1: you know. Yeah, to just say no. (laughs) And you can also go low-tech about, you know, just put the controllers away. (laughs) Because they're smarter and they have more time than we do to figure out how to get around the electronic controls.
0: (laughs) Exactly. They're amazing how they can figure it out. Now, what about, you know, I would agree with you. They say cyberbullying, I think, can be much more harmful than even traditional bullying. And, you know, you had agreed that, you know, it, it creates that anonymity, which, you know, they can't escape it sometimes. It follows them home. It follows them wherever they go. It's awful.
1: Right. Now we have to keep this in context though, because cyberbullying is much less common than regular face-to-face bullying. So in that sense, it's less of a problem, but as you said, it follows kids' homes. So it, it feels kind of inescapable. Um, and and there's a kind of permanence to it once it's out there and it spreads like cancer because it's so easy to just forward it or you know send somebody else the link to whatever it is so it can be very very painful for children
0: right and one of your responses are stop block and tell right
1: that's exact. I did not make that up, but it's a great oh, <laughs> it's okay. a great back them to give kids. Um, to, yes, stop. So you don't don't try to do anything, um, and because a lot of times these these ones will, like if you say try to leave the page, it'll just come up more. So um, just uh, stop and step away from it. Let the adult do the blocking um, if it's a, a particular person um and definitely tell an adult about what's going on.
0: Right, I know, and I think Facebook has gone out of style for children, at least from
1: I hear it's Instagram mostly.
0: <laughs> I know. That's what my daughter has really uh been drawn to. My other daughter isn't interested in it, but my other daughter really likes the Instagram. But I know there's something right. you, you call Facebook depression that Facebook can lead to loneliness, right?
1: Well, it's one of those chicken and egg questions. Are people who are spending more time on Facebook, is it because they don't have enough going on in their regular life that causes them to feel depressed? Or is it the fact that they're spending more time on Facebook and then comparing themselves? Or it doesn't have to be Facebook. This is a media term, but just online One of the things that I tell, particularly my teenage clients, is you can't compare your inside to someone else's outside. Because when you see people's social media sites, they're they're not going to post the boring stuff, they're not going to post the times when they're feeling a little grumpy and tired. They're posting about, woohoo, we went here, and we did that, and here's all my friends. Um, So it can make it seem like, wow, they lead a really exciting life, and mine is just ordinary.
0: Yes, social media can be sort of a narcissistic showcase. Look at me, look at me. (laughs) And you know, the, the people look like they're having one heck of a good time, and why aren't I included as well?
1: Right, right. And, and it leads to what's called a fear of missing out. Um, but, but this really misses the point of social relationships, because even silently asking ourselves questions along the lines of, how am I doing? How do I compare? Are people impressed with me? Th- that's just a path to misery, because it means that we're not fully engaged with the person or experience in front of us. We're kind of standing back and observing ourselves and judging.
0: Right. How do we get, how do we as parents get our children more engaged with one-on-one interactions versus the social media? Do you have any tips?
1: Well, one thing is to make it a priority. You know, we're all busy and we've got (laughs) so many things going on, but to really make the time to have friends over. So, depending on the age of your child, this could mean inviting another family over. for a family game night, we do we do that a lot, and um, I provide dessert, so it's not even a major. Oh my gosh, I have to clean up the house and, and put a meal on the table. Nah, we do, just just come on over after dinner. We'll play some games, and then take a break and have dessert, and then the kids run off and the, the adults chat. So, but it's saying this matters to this being together in person matters to us. It could also mean making your home a welcoming place for your child to bring friends over. With little ones, <laughs> we're still orchestrating their their playdates, so so we can make the phone calls and try to have them have somebody over. Talk to them on Wednesday and say, "Who would you like to have over on Friday?" and set that up so that they can get together.
0: Yeah, because then they get that face face to face interaction, and once they get it, they they realize how much they enjoy that more than the social media
1: well we and we also want to make sure that those play dates go well so one tip that i offer is there's often an awkward moment when the other child first comes over and one kid says what do you want to do and the other kid says oh, i don't know what do you want to do <laughs> so you can get past that if with a little preparation beforehand so prep your child when the other child comes over to say would you like to do a or b and then very quickly, they can, or more quickly, they can get into doing the fun stuff. We know from research that kids make friends by doing stuff together. If they're having fun together, then it, it opens the way to friendship.
0: Right, having similar interests. So maybe coaching the child, you know, what do you both enjoy doing? Let's figure that, out what would be good to do.
1: Right, and giving the two choices is kind because you're, you're caring about what your guest wants as opposed to, okay, we have to do this. <laughs> uh, but it, it also makes it easier for the, the other child to pick something.
0: Right, and I know you said on how children make friends, some of the key elements towards friendship is openness, similarity, and shared activities.
1: Right, yes.
0: And Doing since, stuff together. And sincere compliments are a great way to have openness to your friendships. Because I don't, I don't know if children, they seem to be fairly free in giving out compliments to each other, at least from my personal opinion. You know, they seem to be pretty good at giving out compliments.
1: But they, some, most kids are. Some kids don't realize that that's a good thing to do so it, it, and it's it's lovely you know when someone gives us a compliment we're like oh that feels lovely <laughs> what a discerning person
0: <laughs> I know we we never grow That's too old that. for compliments <laughs> do we
1: exactly so it's like a little gift that you're giving to a friend and it signals I like you
0: exactly I mean I love compliments you
1: know we sure.
0: <laughs> now and you also said similarity is a second element in a successful friendship correct if they're similar as far as more in their interests and that kind of thing when you say similarity is that what you're talking about
1: well similarity and interest is definitely important um the research shows that that's one of the biggest predictors of whether two kids will become friends is are they similar so similarity also extends to age and gender and race um and um neighborhood and the more the more that their overlap is the easier it is for, for them to become friends now sometimes when I, when i'm talking with a child about making more friends and i'll ask well who who would you like to be friends with who do you think you could be friends with and they'll go immediately to the most high status kid in their class this is not necessarily the best friend for them if they don't have anything in common they're not going to get along. The friendship won't get get off the ground.
0: Gotcha. Now, what about my other daughter? I have twins, actually, who are 11, going to be 12. And my other daughter is sort of, I would say, antisocial. And my other daughter is very social. She tends to avoid parties, and she says she's happy with just two friends that she likes. Uh Uh And is there a way that I should encourage more of her social engagement?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question, Pamela, because I think it's important to accept that there are many different ways to navigate the social world. And there's a basic distinction between introverts and extroverts. So introverts are the people who get their energy from time alone or time with just one other person. Extroverts are the ones who are the life of the party. So both people can go to a party and enjoy it, but the introvert will come home and say, well, that was fun, but I'm exhausted. (laughs) And extrovert will say, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. I wish it could have lasted another three hours. (laughs) So it's, it's not about what can you do. It's about where do you get your energy? So, It is absolutely fine for your one daughter to be content with two friends because she has those two friends. The diagnostic question that I often ask parents is, does your child have someone to sit with at lunch whose company they enjoy? And if they have that one buddy, they're probably okay.
0: Oh, good, because she does have one buddy that she sits there with. There you go.
1: Home, so I'm happy now.
0: Because <laughs> I'm always worried because she'll be invited to things, and she doesn't want to go, and then my other daughter is off and running. She can't wait to go. So it is right. very different. So
1: Well, there's also manners, right? If somebody <laughs> invites you, you need to go because otherwise you're saying, yeah, I don't want to spend time with you.
0: <laughs> I know. It's just a tough battle with her. She's very uh, strong-willed, and this is how it yeah. is, and I'm not going to do it. So. Well, that's good to know. I I don't have to worry. She has a friend at lunch. So that helps. Well, this has been so much fun. And I know we got to wrap it up. And it's just been so good to talk with you, Eileen. Now, where can they find you?
1: well um, my website is eileen kennedy moore.com and if they're interested in the video series or video or audio series from the great courses it's called raising emotionally and socially healthy kids and it's available at thegreatcourses slash kids
0: awesome now you've written several books right what are the two books have- you've written two parenting books correct
1: That's right. So Smart Parenting for Smart Kids talks about important social-emotional skills like tempering perfectionism, building connections, developing motivation, and finding joy. And then I've also wrote um, with a colleague The Unwritten Rules of Friendship. And this one talks about nine typical children who struggle socially. And it explains what are the social guidelines that these children haven't learned on their own and how can parents and teachers help. My favorite book, that i wrote though is a children's book called what about me 12 ways to get your parents attention without hitting your sister
0: i love that title
1: (laughs) and that one was inspired from life
0: (laughs) (laughs) true life huh children can inspire us in so many ways Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. It's been such a delight, though, Eileen. So it was such a pleasure to speak with you and have on my show. And I will have things up and running. And all this information will be on my show notes on my uh, website for people to browse and click on and find you. So
1: it'll be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Pamela. It was a delight.
0: Thank you, Eileen. Have a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful day.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: I really like these CDs, so don't forget, they're currently on sale at 70% off at thegreatcourses.com forward slash kids. You want to go out right now and buy them. Thanks for listening, and all the information for this podcast is on my show notes on my website at pamelachambers.com. See you next time. Love, peace, and let's talk. This is Pamela Chambers signing off. This is Smart Choices for a Happier Family Life with Pamela Chambers, and this is podcast number nine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Smart Choices for a Happier Life, where it's a community of people working together for social good. Let's share love, peace, and let's talk. Here's your host, Pamela Chambers. All right, everybody, I want to welcome Dr. Eileen Kennedy Moore, and she is the one who is... Um, on the CDs, which are Raising Emotionally and Socially Healthy Kids, at thegreatcourses.com forward slash kids, correct?
1: That's right. Thanks for having me on the show,
0: Pamela. Well, I am so excited to have you on our show, because your information fits right into the genre of my audience. So let's get started. Now, what was your inspiration behind these CDs?
1: Well, most of my work has focused on parenting and especially about helping children develop essential social and emotional skills, helping them learn to manage their feelings and build strong relationships. So the Great Courses actually approached me about doing the series. It's available in both video and audio versions, and I jumped at it because this is something that I'm very passionate about.
0: Well, yeah, because emotional regulation is really has a lot to do with success in life. You know, if we can regulate our emotions, we can think more clearly, correct?
1: That's absolutely true, Pamela. And so many times we think of like, academic and professional success as one category, and then social and emotional issues as is something completely different. But really, these are the foundation for just about every kind of success in life.
0: I would agree. Now, can you... For the audience, sometimes emotional intelligence is sort of abstract. Can you define maybe how you would define emotional intelligence?
1: Well, different people have different definitions. But basically, I think it involves being able to understand and regulate our own emotions and also to be able to understand and communicate with other people about their feelings.
0: Right. And in in the CD, the one thing I liked that you emphasized was the two different forms, emotion dismissing and emotion coaching. Can you explain the difference to the audience?
1: This is coming from research by John Gottman. And I think it's some of the most important research that's come out in the last um, couple of decades. So what he did is he brought parents and children into the lab and had them do different tasks. And what he noticed is that there were several different styles that parents use in relating to their children. So in some parents, when the, the child would get frustrated, would be very dismissing and say, come on, get over it, just, just focus, just come on, just do it. And Now these were not mean parents, I, re- I really want to emphasize this, but they were task-oriented. Then another group of parents, so th- th- these were what they, he called the emotion-dismissing, parents just get over the feelings another group of parents had a style that he called um, actually I forget what he called it but but they, they were very gentle with the children and oh honey this is so hard for you and so they were very focused on the emotions but they didn't really help the kids deal with those emotions and then a third group which is the most interesting group is the emotion coping group now these parents saw it as their job to help children learn to handle their emotions. So when the child became upset, they viewed this as a teaching opportunity. And what they found was that the, the, the parents would acknowledge the child's feelings, but also talk about coping strategies. So I see you're getting a little frustrated. Let's just take a deep breath. Okay, now let's, let's just focus on one part of the puzzle or so, something like that. So you're acknowledging the feelings, but also giving children strategies for dealing with those feelings. And what and found is that parents who did more emotion coaching had kids who um, did better academically, got along better with their peers, according to their teachers, uh, and even um, were healthier. And this, these findings were true three years later. So coaching now predicted well-being three years later for their children. We never get those kind of results in social psychology research. So this is really exciting.
0: That's really neat. Three years later. Wow, that's pretty powerful.
1: Yes, I think so. And it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? We, we want to connect with our children emotionally, but we don't want to leave them just flailing alone with their emotions. We also want to help them say, okay, when you're anxious, what do you do? When you're angry, what do you do? Because those feelings are going to come up. <laughs> we know that.
0: Exactly, and I like some, how you described, you know, helping our children problem solve. Instead of asking questions like, why did you or did you, which seem accusatory towards children – The preferred questions are, you know, what can you do or what might help or better questions to ask our children.
1: Exactly. We don't want to play prosecuting attorneys with our children. Did you do this? Why did you do this? <laughs> because nine out of ten kids are going to lie, or, <laughs> or it was his fault. They'll make excuses. So we want to focus on moving forward, and this is a, a, a very common among siblings. You know that these sibling squabbles that happen so often are again an opportunity for learning. Now. Often, when we're angry with our kids, what we focus on is wanting to punish them. You know, they did something rotten. Can I have a punishment that fits the crime? But really, that's not helpful because children don't learn by suffering. They learn from doing it right. So our question is, how can I get this child back on track? Now, sometimes the child just needs a break away from everybody to just settle down, and then we can focus on moving forward. But sometimes... A lovely, lovely question that you can ask your child is to talk about what's going on. Jeremy's feeling sad because his block tower is knocked over. You, you don't have to mention that because you blocked it over. You said that because the tower is knocked over. What can you do to help him feel better?
0: Yes. I, one of the best things I saw through all the CDs was that same point. Kids don't learn through suffering. They learn through doing it right. And I know so many parents who are, well, what do I do to discipline him? You know, it's just a matter of what can children do to fix it would be a better response.
1: Right. And how can we move forward? How can they make amends? How can they do an apology of action? Because that gets the child back on track and and doing the right thing. And that is how they learn. The, The punishment is is a trap <laughs> it's it, a lot of times parents get, when they come to see me are feeling very frustrated with their child and a part of them is hoping that i will know an even more horrible punishment than anything they've been able to come up with something that once and for all is going to make this kid learn whatever it is that they have to learn but children don't, didn't learn to read once and for all and they didn't learn to ride their bikes once and for all why would they learn something as complicated as managing feelings or getting along with other people once and for all it's an ongoing thing. Discipline is about teaching, not about hurting. Ooh,
0: I like that one a lot. <laughs> now, um, there are actually 12 CDs or 12 lectures that you offer in your series, which are really good. And I thought I, I could spend a whole podcast on each one. But I thought what I would do is just kind of grab some of the CDs first that I thought were more pertinent right today <laughs> in today's culture. And one of them is the teasing and bullying. Because I hear a lot of that in my office as a therapist, and so how do you actually define bullying? It's, it's very different than you know just an aggressive outburst by a child, and so how would you define bullying?
1: Well, the researchers define it as deliberate meanness um, over uh, targeted at a specific individual. Some people say it's over time, so it's repeated, but some people say and in a specific, um, a v- very severe a single very severe event will count. But the most important characteristic that distinguishes bullying from what I call ordinary meanness is that there's an imbalance of power. So somehow the child doing the bullying is more powerful, bigger, stronger, or more socially um, higher status than the other child, which makes it hard for the other child to protect or defend themselves.
0: Gotcha, and I I like how the research pointed out that you shared with us that aggressive children did some form of mean behavior every two minutes and non-aggressive children acted every three minutes of some form of mean behavior.
1: Exactly, so much as we'd like it to be different. Kids can be mean. And, I, you know, it's not usually a matter of, oh, I want to make this person suffer. It's just that their empathy isn't fully developed and they can be impulsive and they're not thinking things through and they're experimenting with social power. So to some extent, I think it's, it's not helpful to... Uh, label, well, these are the bad kids, and we need to protect the good kids from the bad kids. We need to teach all children how to make kind choices.
0: Yeah, and I think that the research points out, because a lot of parents won't be so upset when the children come home and describe a mean act towards them, knowing that it happens so often helps the parents not panic and think oh my god I can't believe this happened
1: right and I do think bullying the b-word is thrown thrown around a lot too easily. And I think that's a real disservice and it trivializes the very severe cases of peer abuse. I had a client once, the the mom came in and said, oh, the, the teacher wanted me to tell you that my daughter was bullying another child. And I said, oh, what happened? And the mom said, well, she called this other girl a big fat meanie. Really? (laughs) I know. I mean, okay, this is not good behavior. And certainly this, my client needed to learn better ways to resolve conflict, but this is not bullying. This is just kind of ordinary meanness. And to slap a label of bully on that child is not going to help her move forward.
0: How do, yeah. And how would a parent know then, like you said, it's a differentiation of power that is really important as far as to define bullying so how does a parent know when to step in and maybe contact the school officials?
1: Well, I think we would start first by seeing if the child can handle it, um, if, if it's not obvious. Like if, if there's an eighth grader picking on a fourth grader, then the parent probably needs to step step in. Um, if it's a whole gang of kids picking on one kid, then the parent might need to, to step in also. But that should not be our first go-to Response: We want we want our kids to be able to handle the little bumps in the road. Um, I, I remember when my, when my kids were younger, my um, my son who's number two used to enjoy sneaking up on my daughter who's number three. I have four kids, um, but he would sneak up on his next youngest um, sisters and grab her doll, and then she would start screaming bloody murder, and then I would get involved demanding that he give the doll back while he ran around the room laughing and flaunting the doll, so obviously, you know, my daughter screams, and my demands weren't doing a thing to discourage this behavior, so I decided to take a different tact, and I coached my daughter on how to respond, so the next time. He came up behind her and grabbed one of her dolls. She looked up at him and said, oh, I didn't realize you were interested in dollies. Would you like to play Kelly's with me? He laughed, threw the doll down, and that was the end of it. And let me tell you, that worked so much better than me getting involved in it for her to be able to handle the situation herself.
0: Yeah. So again, it's the emotional coaching is what you just described, sort of educating our children on a way maybe to end the teasing or the bullying.
1: Right, right, and so I could have said, oh, he's bigger and more powerful, this is bullying, or I could have had confidence in my daughter's ability to handle this ordinary teasing.
0: Yeah, right now my daughter, who is in sixth grade, she's 11, gonna be 12. She just, um, one of the the kids at school, one of the kids, she got um, upset at, and called on Instagram, you guys are mean friends. Well, one girl isn't talking to her. Uh-huh. So now she's like, she keeps pressing forward and forward, trying to get this girl's attention. She's apologized. And still the girl is just ignoring her. So it's been a real sort of challenge for her. How would you coach somebody in that issue?
1: well i think her impulse is right to, to apologize because she didn't make a mistake and we want to tell our children that in general you try not to put it online because what i tell my clients is don't put anything online that you wouldn't want announced over morning announcements
0: <laughs> <God. it's
1: public. laughs> so um, and and that's something that children need to learn they don't know it innately they have to figure it out and usually they figure it out by making a mistake the other part of it though is I think the the parents of the other girl might be needing to talk to her about part of being a good friend is forgiving friends for making mistakes and no friend is always going to be perfect but it's, it's kind of an act of kindness and generosity to say okay we can move on now for your daughter, it might also be helpful if she could talk to this girl directly um, um, in person because the online communication, and I know the kids all love it and their, their thumbs are always going with the text, but it's an attenuated form of connection of communication because we don't have the vocal tone, we don't have the facial expressions or the body language to add a subsex subtext to what the person is saying.
0: Exactly. I know growing up in the digital age is a real challenge for people these days with their children and I know you give some really good information in your lecture number 12 on growing up in the digital age. You said that 86 or research shows that 86% of children engage in unsafe risk on the internet, right?
1: That's what the research is saying and the, the, the unsafe behavior includes privacy risks related to giving out personal information on the web. It includes contact risks, like um, cyberbullying or talking to strangers on the web and it also includes content risks related to encountering inappropriate or upsetting information online so there definitely is a lot going on on there and we absolutely have to educate our children about how to handle it if they encounter something that that is upsetting and how to avoid um, the more awful things Right, and
0: you also said that online cannot online interaction cannot replace face to face interactions. Correct?
1: That's very true. I mean, if you think about two kids playing um, an, an Xbox Live game, so they may not even be in the same room together, and so they could be talking, but they're certainly not looking at each other, um, and. Now, this is fun. Boys enjoy this, and and some girls do, but my observation is mostly boys who are doing this. And it's it's great fun to have a whole gang, and they're all doing it together. But now contrast that with two kids playing catch. So here, they're looking directly at each other. They have to move their bodies and anticipate where the next one, the the ball is coming. And it's a much more interactive, uh, more directly interactive way of communicating. Yeah. So I think we have both. We're not going to get rid of video games and, and cell phones, and it, that's, they're just part of our modern life. But we can recognize that that's just one part of connection.
0: Yeah, and I get a lot of parents in my office that say to me, how do I control my children's video game usage? Do you have any uh, suggestions?
1: Pretty much every mother of boys that I've ever seen has so, said, oh my gosh, the video games, what am I going to do with those? It's hard. It's hard. So I think the first thing you want to do is just look within yourself about what are you comfortable with. And um, different families are going to have different different standards, but I would say have some kind of uh, of limits on it because the research shows that kids whose parents have some limits do much much less than the kids who have no limits and in my experience it's easier to say no uncertain days, you know that, like not on school nights or something like that. Then to do a limited amount of time because the kids will argue. Well, I only did 13 minutes, and <laughs> I just didn't want to have those kind of conversations.
0: <laughs> oh, I have heard that one in my office. You know how they, <laughs> you know, change the time. They'll even change clocks. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing yeah, so how it's, kids. It's,
1: you know. Yeah, to just say no. (laughs) And you can also go low-tech about, you know, just put the controllers away. (laughs) Because they're smarter and they have more time than we do to figure out how to get around the electronic controls.
0: (laughs) Exactly. They're amazing how they can figure it out. Now, what about, you know, I would agree with you. They say cyberbullying, I think, can be much more harmful than even traditional bullying. And, you know, you had agreed that you know it, it creates that anonymity which you know they can't escape it sometimes it follows them home it follows them wherever they go it's awful
1: right now we have to keep this in context though because cyberbullying is much less common than regular face-to-face bullying so in that sense it's less of a problem but as you said it follows kids home so it, it feels kind of inescapable um and, and there's a, a kind of permanence to it once it's out there and it spreads like cancer because it's so easy to just forward it or, you know, send somebody else the link to whatever it is. So it can be very, very painful for children.
0: Right. And one of your responses are stop, block and tell, Right.
1: That's exact. I did not make that up, but it's a great, oh, <laughs> it's okay. a great back to give kids. Um, to, yes, stop. So you don't don't try to do anything, um, and because a lot of times these these ones will, like if you say try to leave the page, it'll just come up more. So um, just uh, stop and step away from it. Let the adult do the blocking. Um, if it's a, a particular person um and definitely tell an adult about what's going on
0: right i know and i think facebook has gone out of style for children at least from
1: i hear it's instagram mostly
0: <laughs> i know that's what my daughter has really uh, been drawn to my other daughter isn't interested in it but my other daughter really likes the instagram but i know there's something right. you, you call facebook depression that facebook can lead to loneliness
1: right well, it's one of those chicken and egg questions. Are people who are spending more time on Facebook, is it because they don't have enough going on in their regular life that causes them to feel depressed? Or is it the fact that they're spending more time on Facebook and then comparing themselves? Or it doesn't have to be Facebook. This is a media term, but just online One of the things that I tell, particularly my teenage clients, is you can't compare your inside to someone else's outside. Because when you see people's social media sites, they're they're not going to post the boring stuff. They're not going to post the times when they're feeling a little grumpy and tired. They're posting about, woohoo, we went here and we did that and here's all my friends. Um, So it can make it seem like, wow, they lead a really exciting life and mine is just ordinary.
0: Yes, social media can be sort of a narcissistic showcase. Look at me, look at me. (laughs) And you know, the, the people look like they're having one heck of a good time and why aren't I included as well?
1: Right, right. And and it leads to what's called a fear of missing out. Um, but, but this really misses the point of social relationships because even silently asking ourselves questions along the lines of how am I doing, how do I compare, are people impressed with me, Th- that's just a path to misery because it means that we're not fully engaged with the person or experience in front of us. We're kind of standing back and observing ourselves and judging.
0: Right. How do we get, how do we as parents get our children more engaged with one-on-one interactions versus the social media? Do you have any tips?
1: Well, one thing is to make it a priority. You know, we're all busy and we've got (laughs) so many things going on, but to really make the time to have friends over so depending on the age of your child this could mean inviting another family over for a family game night we do that we do that a lot and um i provide dessert so it's not even a major oh my gosh i have to clean up the house and and put a meal on the table Nah, we just just come on over after dinner we'll play some games and then take a break and have dessert and then the kids run off and the adults chat so but it's saying This matters, to this being together in person matters to us. It could also mean making your home a welcoming place for your child to bring friends over. With little ones, (laughs) we're still orchestrating their their play dates so, so we can make the phone calls and try to have them, have somebody over, talk to them on Wednesday and say, who would you like to have over on Friday? And set that up so that they can get together.
0: Yeah, because then they get that face. Uh, face-to-face interaction and once they get it they they realize how much they enjoy that more than the social media
1: well we and we also want to make sure that those play dates go well so one tip that i offer is there's often an awkward moment when the other child first comes over and one kid says what do you want to do and the other kid says oh, i don't know what do you want to do <laughs> You can get past that if with a little preparation beforehand. So prep your child when the other child comes over to say, would you like to do A or B? And then very quickly, they can, or more quickly, they can get into doing the fun stuff. We know from research that kids make friends by doing stuff together. If they're having fun together, then it, it opens the way to friendship.
0: Right, having similar interests, so maybe coaching the child, you know, what do you both enjoy doing, let's figure uh, out what would be good to do.
1: Right, and giving the two choices is kind because you're, you're caring about what your guest wants as opposed to, okay, we have to do this. <laughs> uh, but it, it also makes it easier for the, the other child to pick something.
0: Right, and I know you said on how children make friends, some of the key elements towards friendship is openness, similarity and shared activities.
1: Right, yes. And doing sin- stuff together.
0: And sincere compliments are a great way to have openness to your friendships cuz I don't I don't know if children they seem to be fairly free in giving out compliments to each other, at least from my personal opinion. You know, they seem to be pretty good at giving out compliments.
1: But they some most kids are, some kids don't realize that that's a good thing to do. So it, it, and it is it's lovely, you know. When someone gives us a compliment, we're like, "Oh, that feels lovely." <laughs> what a discerning person! <laughs>
0: I know we we never grow That's too lovely. old for compliments, <laughs> do we?
1: Exactly. So it's like a little gift that you're giving to a friend, and it signals I like you. Exactly. I
0: mean, I love compliments. You know, we all do. Now, and you also said similarity is a second element in a successful friendship. Correct. If they're similar, as far as more in their interests and that kind of thing when you say similarity is that what you're talking about
1: well similarity and interest is definitely important um the research shows that that's one of the biggest predictors of whether two kids will become friends is are they similar so similarity also extends to age and gender and race um and um neighborhood and the more the more that their overlap is the easier it is for, for them to become friends now sometimes when I, when I'm talking with a child about making more friends and I'll ask well who who would you like to be friends with who do you think you could be friends with and they'll go immediately to the most high status kid in their class this is not necessarily the best friend for them if they don't have anything in common they're not going to get along. The friendship won't get get off the ground.
0: Gotcha. Now, what about my other daughter? I have twins, actually, who are 11, going to be 12. And my other daughter is sort of, I would say, antisocial. And my other daughter is very social. She tends to avoid parties, and she says she's happy with just two friends that she likes. Uh Uh And is there a way that I should encourage more of her social engagement?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question, Pamela, because I think it's important to accept that there are many different ways to navigate the social world. And there's a basic distinction between introverts and extroverts. So introverts are the people who get their energy from time alone or time with just one other person. Extroverts are the ones who are the life of the party. So both people can go to a party and enjoy it, but the introvert will come home and say, well, that was fun, but I'm exhausted. And extrovert will say, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. I wish it could have lasted another three hours. (laughs) So it's, it's not about what can you do. It's about where do you get your energy. So... It is absolutely fine for your one daughter to be content with two friends because she has those two friends. The diagnostic question that I often ask parents is, does your child have someone to sit with at lunch whose company they enjoy? And if they have that one buddy, they're probably okay.
0: Oh, good, because she does have one buddy that she sits There with you go. Head, so I'm happy now. Because <laughs> I'm always worried because she'll be invited to things and she doesn't want to go. And then my other daughter is off and running. She can't wait to go. So it is right. very different. So Well,
1: there's also manners, right? If somebody invites you, you need to go because otherwise you're saying, yeah, I don't want to spend time with you.
0: <laughs> I know. It's just a tough battle with her. She's very uh, strong-willed and this is how it yeah. is. And I'm not going to do it, so. Well, that's good to know. I I don't have to worry. She has a friend at lunch. So that helps. Well, this has been so much fun. And I know we got to wrap it up. And it's just been so good to talk with you, Eileen. Now, where can they find you?
1: Well, um, my website is eileen eileenkennedymoore.com, and if they're interested in the video series or video or audio series from The Great Courses, it's called Raising Emotionally and Socially Healthy Kids, and it's available at thegreatcourses.com slash kids.
0: Awesome. Now, you've written several books, right? What are the two books? Have- you've written two parenting books, correct?
1: That's right. Uh, So Smart Parenting for Smart Kids talks about important social-emotional skills like tempering perfectionism, building connections, developing motivation, and finding joy. And then I've also wrote, um, with a colleague, The Unwritten Rules of Friendship. And this one talks about nine typical children who struggle socially. And it explains what are the social guidelines that these children haven't learned on their own, and how can parents and teachers help. My favorite book that I wrote, though, is a children's book called What About Me? 12 Ways to Get Your Parents' Attention Without Hitting Your Sister.
0: I love that title.
1: <laughs> that one was inspired from life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> True life, huh? Children can inspire us in so many ways.
1: Absolutely. Oh my gosh, it's been such a delight,
0: though, Eileen. So it was such a pleasure to speak with you and have on my show. And I will have things up and running. And all this information will be on my show notes on my uh, website for people to browse and click on and find you. So it'll be wonderful.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show, Pamela. It was a delight. Thank you, Eileen. Have a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful day. You too. Bye.
0: -bye. Bye. I really like these CDs, so don't forget, they're currently on sale at 70% off at thegreatcourses.com forward slash kids. You want to go out right now and buy them. Thanks for listening, and all the information for this podcast is on my show notes on my website at pamelachambers.com. See you next time. Love, peace, and let's talk. This is Pamela Chambers signing off. Thanks for listening to Smart Choices for a Happier Life at PamelaChambers.com. Wishes for you to have a blessed day.
1: Wishes for you to have a blessed day.